Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Coming off a very solid weekend, ready to dig into a very busy work week. Um, so we're going to go straight into today's Q&A. This is with Dale. Dale's a very accomplished powerlifter, close to 800 pound squat. Um, and so we were talking about um, how to utilize the box squat in his favor to perhaps um, evolve some qualities that he may have given up in return to be able to squat 800 pounds. And so um, one of the reasons we, we really like the box squat is because it is so versatile. So we can use it for pelvic outlet issues. We can use it for managing internal forces. Um, it's, it's a very useful activity um, for those larger human beings that you typically wouldn't want to do bouncy, bouncy kind of things with but still get the effect on the connective tissue. So again, very useful. And so we break this down with Dale as to what he may want to, want to utilize um, in, in his box squat, um, since he is so accomplished, but he is getting a little bit older, kind of like yours truly. And, and so again, very helpful, Dale. Thank you for being there. Thank you for asking your question. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in the email. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday and I will see you tomorrow. Dale. <laughs> Yes. Is this your first question ever? First question ever. Oh, so. man. Everybody hold on. Here we go. No. <laughs> All right. So I've watched a couple of your videos on box squatting. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh -huh. That's something I've been doing since <clears throat> the 70s. Um, so I've had a lot of experience doing them. Yep. I've never really understood some of the things that I've seen up until uh -huh. I saw you model. Okay. Right? And I realized that Yes, there are a lot of caveats to, to each architect type, whether it's wide or narrow, right? Yes, sir. My understanding from what I'm, if I'm understanding this right, me being a wide, I'm going to be more concentrically oriented. Yes, sir. Right? Yes, sir. Is the best strategy for me at that point, or for, let's say for, for wides that have a good range already, right? to barely touch the box and come up or to sit and try to yield more? Okay, so, so we have to decide what the intention is. And, and, and when I say that, um, the intention would be based on what is the limiting factor for you, okay? Under most circumstances, most circumstances, because you, you carry more concentric orientation, because of the shape of your pelvis being biased towards exhalation, which means that the, the pelvic outlet, the anterior outlet, so the bottom of the pelvis pushes up really, really well, and your connective tissue behavior would be biased towards overcoming under most circumstances, right. okay? To make you more overcoming probably won't help. Okay. And again, not knowing you, I would say yeah. probably. Okay. Right. Which means, so this is why I, I you got a powerlifting background, Dale? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Powerlifting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I figure when you, when you said 70s and box squats, I figured, right? Yeah. I trained on a Hatfield. Oh, you did? Yeah. Dr. Squat. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, no, I know who it was, dude. Still, still, still the best. Like the Hawaiian record breakers meet where he did the 1014. Yeah, I have the video on my phone. In less than two seconds. I know. That's amazing. And it was deep. It was deep. Arguably still the best squat that's ever been performed in history. Okay, so let's go back to the squat thing. Okay. Um, Okay, so... Again, because because of your your concentric bias, because of your 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 extensive extensive nature of training, mm-hmm. right, you're going to have a great deal more of connective tissue stiffness through adaptation, like I said, and training, and then structural bias. And so, for you to be able to utilize the energy that is stored in releasing connective tissues, in most cases, you're probably going to be using strategies that would create the yield which means that you need to deload to the box. Now, there's, there's a bunch of ways to, to tweak that as well. So you've seen like the, um, they put like the, the couch foam. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Top of the box. Okay, so what, what the couch foam does is it, is it prolongs the duration of the deceleration, which again, adds more yield uh, yield action to, to the exercise versus just sitting down on the box and expanding on the box, right? And so again, there's a whole bunch of strategies that, that you're utilizing here, but generally speaking, you're going to be a guy that, that has to deload to the box because you need to create a yield somewhere. Typically where that's going to be for you is like, you're going to use your skeleton a fair amount, right? And then the deload to the box is going to, depending on how long you're there and loads and such, it's going to determine like how you're going to distribute that yield through the other connective tissues. Because if you were to touch and go, um, you you would not yield very long at all. Therefore, the amount of energy that you would store in your connective tissues would be reduced. Okay. Okay. Hang on. So if you were training for a competition, okay, the closer and closer you get to competition, you need to transition into the touch and go because that's what you're going to end up doing in competition. Right? So you teach yourself to store and release more energy. And then you try to try to teach yourself to do that in a shorter period of time. So the time that you're on the box is a certain length of time. And then eventually you want those connective tissues to be able to store and release energy a little bit faster. And so this is going to change the duration that you're spending on the box. And then you're going to slowly take away the box. Um, so you do get the, uh, the, the amount of yield and overcome that you can produce again, because there's no box in competition, obviously. Right. Right. So as a follow up, one of the things I noticed in the videos was where you, they came down to the box and then leaned back. You have to deload. You have to, you have to, you have to put so pressure is, down. Okay. That was just something we were not, we had never done. And I, yeah. I saw that and I was kind of, we'd always stayed away from any type of momentum for what we were trying to accomplish. I was trying to understand that, that point of it. What you're seeing is the, is the, is the load of weight onto the box to create the yield. Okay. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, 
crazy busy Tuesday. Um, we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Um, this question is with Alec, and Alec's question led us in a really cool direction in regards to talking about how we take measures and how we perceive measures. And one of the things that we, we always talk about, we talk about dirty measures, which means that there's a lot of movement that's taking place within our measures. And so if we were measuring someone's hip, for instance, the thing we have to recognize is that it's not just the hip joint as it's implied, um, as we are often taught in school. And so what we have to recognize is that we're not just measuring a hip joint, even though we would call it something. So we would refer to it as hip external rotation. We're not just measuring the, the hip joint itself. We have to take into consideration the anomalous position. We have to take into consideration the, the sacral relationship to the the anomaly. We have to consider the spinal rotation. And, and this is why the discussion went towards um, how we use language in our discussions as well. So for instance, in this discussion, the word full was used, which implies that we have some sort of normal measure. And what we have to recognize right away is that what we're measuring is we're measuring idiosyncratic measurements. So, so these are measurements that are very specific to the individual and we make comparisons to average. So that's what's in the textbook. The textbooks are average. They're not normals because the minute we start calling something normal, then we imply that, that all of the contributors to that motion are intact. Whereas in many cases, especially when we're first laying out our chessboard, which is basically just your grid of your, your total measurements, when we're first laying that out, we have to look at the relationships to determine what's actually happening. So even though we have a measure that appears to be equivalent to what would be considered the textbook average, we can't necessarily say that it is normal or that it is full because then we're more likely to make a misjudgment and then intervene inappropriately. And so then our outcomes are sacrificed under those circumstances. So Alec, thank you so much for uh, leading us in this discussion because I think it's gonna be useful for a lot of people. If you'd like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it and also include your question in the email. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow. I think I recently came to a revelation where I realized that um, ranges of motion on table tests are representation of movement capacity, right? Uh, if, if you can give me a, a rep. A oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going on word with that. Just um, so... I think before, when I was thinking of restoring range of motion, I was thinking of, let's say, hip high R and ER at 90 as like a hallway. And I was gradually making each end of the hallway further, like I was making the hallway longer, as if I was like literally um, like creating more space or just repositioning in a position where they both exist at the same time. And now I'm, I'm starting to think where it's more... Uh, it's more as if I was changing how much the platform moves side to side in like a video game, if that makes sense. In a sense, it's just how much can can we move or or if it's like an elastic that could be pulled further and further in the one direction and then in the other. I'm just trying to figure out like how much of a fixed thing is it or how much it's a... Uh, just as I'm trying to, 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 I'm wondering if that's what you mean when you say like when we take measure, I'm not just measuring a hip, I'm measuring like a spine, I'm measuring other stuff. It's just how much the whole system can allow me to 
go towards that direction and it's more about a capabilities than a, about a like an archic um i want to just like a, a physical fact that is present at all time well it, it, if we if we look at it as just a change in shape yeah okay so as i twist a hip yeah in er or ir yeah If you, if you could see the tension lines in all of the tissues. So if I'm twisting a hip into ER mm -hmm. and if, I, so, okay. Somebody's laying on the table. I'm doing a left hip ER range of motion. Okay. With the hip at 90 degrees relative to the table. Right. So I twist the hip in that outward direction and you should be able to see the tension lines pulling from the right shoulder towards the left hip. You would see mm -hmm. it coming from the other side of the pelvis towards the left hip. You would see it coming down the left side to wrap underneath and, and around. So you could see, like, again, you're seeing this whole twit, the whole system is, is creating this, this tension, right? That's what you're measuring. You're measuring this entire system's ability to, to allow the tissues to, to move through the excursion. Mm -hmm rather than just looking at this, you know, yeah, oh, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm moving the hip joint. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. you are hopefully, right. If that's the goal and, and, but you got to see that everything else is contributing to this. And then the, the degree to which everything can contribute determines what the movement outcome would be. So um, if you uh, uh, take your hand like this, And then bring your thumb into a little bit of opposition and then grab the skin right there, like pinch it. See it? Yeah. Now, don't let go of the skin and then try to open your hand up. It's restricted, right? Yeah. Does that mean that you have a, 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 a metacarpal phalangeal joint restriction? No, no. No. It just means that I did not yeah, let okay. that tissue move through its full excursion that would, that would allow the thumb to demonstrate its full range of motion. So that, that's, that simple premise right there should help you to recognize that when you're measuring a joint, you're not measuring the joint, yeah. right? The joint Excuse is a contributor cool. for sure. Does that, does that clarify? Like, does yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. I understand in theory, What, like posterior compression, steals, uh, ER, interior, uh, uh, yeah, ER, interior compression, steals, IR. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I, I want to start getting better at understanding turns. So let's say I have a client where we did get improvement in basically every measure. Um, she has a little bit better of a straight leg raise, hip flexion, and needed chest on the left. She has better ER a little bit less good IR and it's, it's the flip flop of that on the right. Now I just want to kind of fix. So a little less good of a straight leg raise on the right, a little less good of hip flexion, a little less good of a needed chest. Um, she, instead of like 30, 35, 40 degrees of ER, she got 25 of yep. ER yep. on the right and she got full IR on that leg. So yeah. now I'm, I, I want to uh, start. Okay, hang on. I'm, I'm going to stop you. Okay. Yeah. So you say she's got full IR on the right. Yeah. Okay. The way you describe that. Yeah. When you say full. 
40 degrees. Think it's not probably dirty. Not my point, boss. Okay. Not my point. The minute you say she's got full hip IR on the right, you are misjudging the representation that is producing the measure. Cool. So that's my question. Okay. So, so freeze frame for just a sec. Okay. So if, if all of those measures are representative distributed contributions to the measure, so femur in the, in the hip socket, the innominate bone moving, the sacrum moving and the spine moving. So all of those things should move together in mm -hmm. concert to whatever degree to produce a result. Okay. If you call it full, that term implies that this is how it should be. Okay. Do you understand why I said that? Yeah. But let's just say that that 40 degrees was only the spine turning. Yeah. Is it full? Yeah. Okay. You see, I'm getting that. It's like, it's like we got to be really careful about how we are like, because you're creating a perspective in, in your own mind as to what is good. Yeah, it's a very shallow, good. quantitative appreciation. Well, the, 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 thing, the thing that I want, the thing that I want you to understand is like like these are always systemic measures. It's like what is the what are what are the contributors to the to the final measure? The minute you yeah. say this is normal, this is full, then you're you're implying that this is this is the measure that you want. It's like you got the leg in a position that looks like the textbook measure but how did you acquire it and that's what's important yeah cool so understanding that that's why yeah. the chessboard that's why the chessboard becomes important because the chessboard shows you the relationships as to why you got that measure based on traditional techniques of measuring i don't think you have uh, the distributed measure of, of internal rotation yeah. at the hip joint. I think you got a, you got a big measure, but guess what moved to get there? You see it? It's like, you got to be really careful with that because you, you make the assumption, that, oh, I don't need to worry about that measure at all. It's, it's normal. That, but it's that, normal. but that was not, that was, that was not my point. That was more I, like. I know it's not, okay, 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 it's okay, not okay. But, but, but I'm also, I'm also trying to, yeah, 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 everybody understands this premise. Yes. Okay. Like I'm, 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 I'm using your example to to explain. Okay. Because yeah. I know you know it's dirty. I know you know it's dirty. You, but I, but but going through it with depth surely yeah. expanded my appreciation for why we need clarity in the language we use. Yeah. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, well, today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow's Thursday. That means tomorrow, 6 a.m. As usual, the Coffee and Coaches Conference call, um, live Q&A, bring some coffee, bring some questions, join some great people. Um, we're getting close to call number 100, so we've been doing this for a while. We're getting pretty good at it. Um, so please join us. Okay, digging into today's Q&A. This is from Taya. Taya asked a really good question that is, is probably a curiosity for a lot of people in regards to these definitions of open and closed chain and how do we use those. I'm not a big fan 
of the of the definition. I think they're very vague. I don't know if they're terribly useful when we consider shape change as the element of movement. If we consider the the representation of external rotations and internal rotations in regards to movement. So, for instance, if we looked at an early propulsive foot representation and a late propulsive foot representation, both would be considered closed chain, but the direction of forces are actually different and the mechanics are actually different. So again, if they're both considered closed chain, I think it just leaves, it's just too much of a gray area and it's too vague. Better to look at this from what direction is energy moving, what direction is force production moving. And, and again, I think those are much useful representations. Um, so we kind of hashed that out a little bit in this discussion, but still a great question because again, I think that the way that things are represented, um, if we can be a little bit more clear about the mechanics of, of such things, it allows us to make better choices in regards to our interventions, um, especially when we look at it as an early, middle, or late propulsive activity. So thank you, Taya, outstanding question. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Please include your question in the email. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Everybody have a great day. I just wanted to get more clear understanding on the open versus closed kinetic chain. And because I, I know, I know, <laughs> I know this, but... I just, I just love the way that I create biases in other people. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I know that we were already discussing this once and you said that there's no true open kinetic chain. I just wanted to clear on that. Well, it's it's just a, it's just a poor it's just the the definitions the original definitions are just kind of vague, right? That's that's what my problem is. What we're really talking about is like what direction is, is the energy going in regards to these activities? It's like am I am I going from proximal to distal or distal to proximal? That's that's the better representation of this. It's just harder to see. Um, so give me like a specific, um, do you have like a specific example in mind that we can, we can use as a frame of reference, like to, to just to clarify your question? No, but maybe like one presentation that just popped into my mind is like a squat is considered like a closed kinetic chain, while the knee extension is considered the open kinetic chain. Right. Okay. Um, so, uh, so we can look at this as, um, um, the direction of, of the force is different in those two activities, okay? In the squat, as I, as I apply my force into the ground, okay? That is coming from central, so it's proximal to distal. Like I have to push into the ground. I have to push the ground away for me to come up out of the squat, right? Okay, mm -hmm. when I'm kicking my leg out in front of me, because of the orientation of the skeleton and because of the direction of the, of the energy that's being applied, they actually go in different directions. So, so if, I'm, if I'm kicking my leg out in front of me against a resistance um, because of the, the orientation at the knee, if you, so we'll just use the knee as the representation, um, that's, that's a force that's actually coming towards me. Right, so the energy that, that is being applied is, is a distal to proximal direction 
And then when I push into the ground, it's me pushing away. That would be the difference between the two. And so that would be a better distinguishing characteristic in what we would consider like an open versus closed chain kind of a thing, right? Because the original definition of, of like closed chain was when the distal segment meets a significant resistance, which is kind of like, okay, defined, defined significant for me. Um, and it, so it, it was kind of a vague representation to begin with, right? Because if I'm pushing against something that gives way, so even like a leg press, if I was putting my foot on a, on a platform and pushing the, that away, they go, oh, is it a significant resistance? So does that mean like a really light leg press and a really heavy leg press are both closed chainers, one open and one closed? And it's just like, again, it becomes really vague under those circumstances. But in this case, the leg press would be proximal to distal. Yes. Yes. Okay. So rather than open versus uh, closed kinetic chain, just look at, I should just look at where the wave goes, uh, starts and goes to. So yeah, yeah. Okay, in the extension, it goes from the load on the knee mm -hmm. towards the mm -hmm. proximal part of the. Yeah. Board. So, so, um, so, and, and again, this, there's a tremendous amount of, of gray area in this discussion. So um, if you were just taking a step forward, okay, mm -hmm. all right, and your foot lands on the ground out in front of you, so you're in an early propulsive representation, um, is the foot on the ground? Yes. Is it applying force to the ground? Yes. But, but what force is greatest under those circumstances? It's the force that's actually... Um, um, going away to place your foot there. So as soon as your foot hit makes contact with the ground, it's like the force is still magnified towards the ground. And then you start pushing against the ground and then the, the force comes towards you. Right. And so again, it's like, as you apply more force into the ground and then you start pushing harder and harder and harder, now it becomes a proximal to distal force that becomes the primary force. So even though your foot's on the ground the whole time, it's like the degree of energy that's moving towards you and the degree of energy that's moving away from you is different. Both are there, right? And so again, it's, it's like ERs and IRs are always there. Inhales and exhales are always there, right? Pro proximal to distal and distal to proximal are always there. It's just like to whatever degree each one is represented. And then that's how we can classify like an early, middle or late representation. And so if they're always both there, it's like then every exercise is, has an element of, of the open and closed chain, right? So in this case, when we were talking about the gate, the middle representation is just like one on top of the other. Or right. So mm -hmm. and, and and then and then it then it peaks where it's going to be the the highest force into the ground, right? And then you move in into your late representation, which is definitely proximal to distal, right? Okay. So you get this sort of ramp up of of a force application where it becomes so if we were defining it as closed chain it would become more and more and more and more closed chain and then it would that would be the early representation and then it maxes out where i apply the greatest force into the ground that would be the most closed chain element of of walking and then as i move into a late it becomes less and less and less closed chain and more open chain right mm -hmm. you see it it's like they're both there which again makes it I don't know if it's a useful representation to call things open and closed. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to clarify things in my head. So yeah. I know what's going on. Thank you. I'm very cool with that. Good question, though.
Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. I have what feels like a pretty basic question and almost answers itself, but before somebody enters a standing position, after you capture some sort of axial skeletal position, would you typically make sure that you capture the foot cues on the ground before then getting them to do that in standing? Um, yeah, so, okay, so this, this kind of ties into a little bit of what we just talked about with Alex in, in regards to, to just capturing cues, right? If you're gonna get somebody upright and so they're in some variation of standing, doesn't matter what stance you're using or, or uh, elements of support or whatever, you, you have to have the ground, you have to have some sort of ground contact relative to gravity. So you're, you're uh, sensing position, right? And then the, the, the number of contacts you have determines how much relative motion you can have, et cetera, et cetera, right? So um, the, it's because you're upright and the foot is what is in contact with the ground, it stands to reason that, okay, that's gonna be a pretty significant influence. So yes, you do need to get those contacts. Um, and the, the simplest way to, to sort of recognize this is to just stand up on your own feet and take away certain ground contacts and get a sense of like, oh, this is putting me in this position or it's moving me away from midline. So if you roll to the outside edges of both feet, you've just taken away your medial foot contacts that we talk about all the time that give us internal rotation, <clears throat> right? And so um, it stands to reason that if you're going to get somebody upright, you better have those effective contacts, right? Right. And it's, it, it's going to be the limiting fact. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be the limiting factor in your ability to acquire certain position. Now, I've seen you kind of play around with uh, whether it's in standing or in hook line, play around with having people explore the outer edge of the foot, come back in. Yep. Yep. Is that a typical part of your process just to have them understand how that transition between almost like the, the foot representation of internal and external rotation feels? Is that typically where you would go rather than just be like, right. Here's a job. like, <laughs> So, so if I'm if I'm trying to find a representation of of something that falls into a middle representation, it, it would behoove me to understand what the two extremes are. Mm. So if you don't know where the the ends are, you have no idea where middle is. Yeah. And then so most people don't have they, they haven't attended to that sensation before. And it's so powerful in regards to what we do when we're trying to restore movement or produce force that, that again, it gives them an understanding um, as to where they need to be able to find those contacts. And so if, if they can understand what the extremes are, then they know where middle is. Right. Okay? That's, that's why I do that. Because in most cases, they're living at one of the two extremes. They're either way over on the medial foot, contact or their way to the outside of the of the lateral foot contact and that's what they think middle is so you're just giving them a sensation got it yeah and then and then you get to make the associations with the muscle activity that goes up from the foot 
because they because I always get the same question because when you're when you're messing around with with foot contacts and stuff, they go, "How am I supposed to find that myself?" And then it, they said, "Did you feel the muscles up into your leg turn on in this certain sequence?" They go, "Yes." I go, "That's how you know you got the foot right because everything above the foot, you start to sense that, right?" And so again, it's just about it's drawing attention to some some um, internal stuff so that they learn to to find it themselves right and then um you, you're uh uh you're gonna get a lot better carryover because then they're gonna start they're, like people start to find that stuff on their own automatically which is right. what you want, which is what you want right 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 you don't, want, you don't want to be you know four months into a training program and say okay let's find that you know what i mean yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you do, you teach them something new. You might have to, might have to show them again, but the point being is like, people are pretty smart. They'll figure they'll figure this stuff out, but, but give them an opportunity to, to feel, you know, the extremes. It's like when you, when you do rolling for the first time with somebody and they they feel like they've rolled around on the ground before, but they've never attended to what it feels like. Right. And so you got to take them through an excursion. You go, okay, do you feel that one spot like about halfway through? That's where I want you to land. You know, little things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then one more question the standing resets. Uh, I, as far as I know, just from face value, I, I use a couple of different tools to unweight. So I'll use like a side cable load from uh -huh. above. Mm -hmm. I'll use a high box, like just to have them support themselves from. Uh -huh. the I was just wondering on, a, and then sometimes a foam roller, uh, just as like a, they can unweight with their arms. Um, yep. Any other ideas on on ways to unweight? Any kind of special circumstances where you might want to avoid those and do something else um, for a standing reset? Are there any other ideas that you might have? Uh, so any anything anything that's obviously gonna gonna reverse the gears of gravity is gonna be be helpful. So all of those suggestions that you're making are are appropriate. One second, please. Um, I always get distracted. See, I lose my train of thought. I get I get. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, unweighted. <clears throat> Rubber bands are great um, because. Uh, you can buy rubber band stuff, you know, tubing and, and bands. And then you can give those as, as uh, tools for home because they can just hook them on a door or something like that. And they can learn how to do that kind of stuff. Um, I, like, I like the rubber bands a lot because they provide a lot of sensation because the harder you pull on the rubber band, the more tension there is. And then you can, you can literally unweight people that way. But um, something as simple as, as a, as a, partially reclined position it's like you use a wall like you ever you ever do like a you, you take the people that can't do uh like a side plank or something like that okay i had one of those yesterday and you lean them against the wall okay wait right? how would you set that up with the feet you move the feet away from the wall and you lean against the wall Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that would be this, like, so if you're standing upright and you put your elbow on the wall, just move the feet away and you have now 
yeah. put them on an incline. So, so again, that's a gradual load. And so instead of taking somebody and trying to do it on the floor for the first time, it's like you want to gradually introduce the amount of load, right? So, so you just lean them against the wall or you lean them on, a, on, on your box. Like you can, you can teach people how to do you know, the, the side positions leaning on something versus being fully loaded on the ground. Right. All of those, all of those are lightened methods, right? Right. You're, you're just reducing the, the, the full load of gravity. That's all. And you, and you would just make sure that you have a, a propulsive strategy with multiple bases of support and pretty much. Correct. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about this for a sec. So if let's just say that you got somebody, we're, we're doing like a straight up old side plank. They can't do it on the ground. So you elevate them. So now their arm is up on a box. Yep. On a, on a big box, like a high box. Yeah. Um, so now your ground contact becomes the elbow and the hand, right? Yep. Okay. So same rules. Okay. But it's just a different sensation, right? You, so you have the op Sorry, you'd have the opposite leg um, almost controlling the, the other. What I, what I tend to do, and that's what I tend to do in that situation is, is I will put them, I will put them in, in a, a staggered stance. Okay. So if you're, if you're leaning on your left, on your left arm, you might have like the, the right foot forward, left foot back orientation. I see. And then typically you'll be able to capture the full foot. Uh, generally speaking, yes. Okay. okay. Again, because you're, you're playing with that, you're playing with the angle. Okay. Right. The closer you get to the floor, the less you're going to have a, a foot contact, like a whole foot contact. Right. However, however, you still have foot contacts. Right. Okay. So keep that in mind. Right. Cool. So think about this for a second, young man. Left side plank. Okay, on the floor. Can't get the bottom of the foot down. Right? Hello? Yep. Okay. You, 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 either, you either were thinking deeply or you froze. So there was a little bit for me. Okay. So which way, which way will they turn if I go right foot forward, left foot back? in a left side plank. Towards the left. Exactly right. Why? Because the, well, I guess I think of two things. One is the right hip is ahead of the left. And then two is that you're trying to capture internal rotation on the left side, the left, the left forearm and wrist and all that, yeah. And so, so those foot contacts go along with the, the turn into the left side. Cool. So still useful, still useful. Not the same foot contact. Everybody's thinking really hard now. Well, it, it's helpful because it's like, you're helping me connect some application to the principles. Like I didn't even think of doing a, a lean on the wall, like, or even at, on a high box. It's just, you have like, you know, your, your arsenal of exercises that you Andrew, try to break out. Do you ever take somebody that can't do a push up and you, and you go to the rack and you put the bar in the rack and you have them do push ups on the bar? Not these days. I'll typically use a high box, but yeah, I get the principle. Well, but you know what I'm saying? It's like you're, 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 you're bringing the ground up so, so that they're on an incline. So they're not lifting the, the two thirds of their body weight that they would never naturally have to lift in a push up, right? Right, right. Same principle. 
Right. It's just, it's like you're just, again, you're just bringing the ground up to make it easier. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Whew. Hey, very busy Friday today. So we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. Um, this is with Matt from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conference call. So Matt's question uh, revolved around dorsal rostral expansion, especially when you have an asymmetrical representation, um, which often represents a little bit of a turn. And so basically this is a, actually a pretty short video um, discussing a little trick that we can use um, in regards to some of the activities that we're choosing. Um, we have to understand that we've got we got forces that are going from uh, proximal to distal and distal to proximal, which means that we can use foot, foot positions, hand orientations, and different contacts to drive shape change proximally. And this is what we're talking about, using a deadlift. So um, I used an example of a powerlifter that we actually demonstrated this with at a powerlifting seminar, man, it must be a couple years ago now, um, where we actually just flip-flopped her, her deadlift grip and restored a lot of neck range of motion. And, and so the neck, the neck thing is actually very common. Um, and so uh, we brought Dale in. Dale's a powerlifter who was on the call. Dale was very familiar with the representation that we were talking about as well. So um, it was just a fun little segment of, of the call, but, but probably very useful for a lot of people in regards to not having to chase a bunch of, uh, you know, unusual rehabish kind of exercises. Just a couple of things that you could do to influence these things in the gym. So uh, thank you, Matt, for leading us in this direction. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Please put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Include your question in the email. If you would, we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. Podcast will be up on Sunday, and I'll see you next week. Uh, let me let me see. Let's say we've got someone who's got a um, <clears throat> dorsal rostral space, which is uh, we're trying to expand. Gotcha. So, yeah. And uh, we've got them. The it's uh, predominantly uh, more so on one side than the other. So we might see like a push forward, right, right I gotcha. side. My yep. Okay. Um, so if we were to if we were to write some programming based on trying to achieve some hypertrophy, two questions in respect to that. Okay. I think we have. I think I know where you're going now. Okay. Yeah. So so your your concern is 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 um, you want you want you're going to need to to load this area, but you don't want to make the the current orientation worse. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Let me let me let me throw something out to you um, that, that you'll understand. Um, and then we might be able to use this to our advantage. <clears throat> you deadlift? Yeah. Use a mixed grip? Yeah. Okay. Which, what, which hand is, is supinated for you? Uh, right hand. Okay. Which way are you turning under those circumstances with your deadlift? Which way am I turning? Yes, sir. I try not to turn with my deadlift. Well, you're turning if you got a mixed grip, my friend. So you got <laughs> bad news. <laughs> you can't. You can't not. Okay. Okay. So um, let's see. I, I'd say probably turning to my right. Exactly. Okay. And all you got to do is like if you're not sure, just just put your hands in, in your mixed grip and then exaggerate them, and you will feel the direction that you're yeah. going to go. Okay. All right. So so think about this, Matt is like, there's your, there's your orientation on the backside. 
You got yeah. two paddles. You got two paddles on your back that you're that you're 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 twisting against the thorax. That's going to emphasize this turn, right? Um, yeah. So so one of the one of the strategies that you may use when you are trying to prevent uh, this representation from from potentially worsening, creating more compression on one side, is just teaching them to flip flop their mix grip. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the opposite turn. So <clears throat> you ever get the uh you ever get the power lifters with that they, they come in, they got that neck thing. Neck thing. Nah. Well, well explain. They get the neck thing. Dale Dale knows what I'm Dale, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So power lifters come in and they they always got this neck thing. Um, where they 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 go, oh yeah, I can turn my head this way, but I can't go this way. Oh uh, right? yeah, yeah. It's over there, okay. yeah. the, the quickest the quickest fix the quickest fix that you do is you go oh let's go over the deadlift platform and you put like a like a 50 percent one rm weight on it and you have them do the opposing strategy of their deadlift and then they go oh there it is then they, they get the they, it gets freed up because you're because you're creating the opposing turn so the whole system is going to turn in response to the load and to the the strategy so this is just like this is just like foot contacts on the ground making a turn. So let's go all the way back to Alex's question and Andrew's question. We talk about the, the, the foot contacts to make the turn. The way that you grip and hold things is gonna influence upstream into the thorax. And so very, very useful in regards to the, the, to the thing that you're, you're bringing up is you can use those strategies to help influence the axial shape as you're producing load. Now, you're still fighting the battle of magnitude of force, hypertrophy responses and, and such, but you're potentially minimizing potential. 